Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest this week is the former British Army intelligence officer, Philip Ingram, MBE. Philip, welcome to the show. Nice to be on. Thank you. Firstly, the scenes we've been witnessing in the Ukraine have just been absolutely horrific. Could I ask for your assessment of what's currently going on within this Russia-Ukraine war? Uh, well, you're right. It's horrific. It's absolutely shocking. And for anyone who's been in a conflict zone, you know just how horrific it is. Um, and I've unfortunately got too many baubles um, from having been in conflict zones. Um, you introduced me as a former senior intelligence officer. Uh, I have been and therefore monitored conferences. I was in the British Army for over 26 years, and I was also a military planner. So I've planned operations at this sort of level, um, which has given me a sort of insight into the sorts of tactics that um, would be being used, should have been put together, and you know, how Ukraine would have ordered its, its defence. You know, from a Russian perspective, it's a very difficult task attacking into such a large area. So what they'll have had to do is identify their main effort. And uh, Vladimir Putin and his foreign minister, um, Sergei Lavrov, have both said effectively what that is. It's to decapitate the political and military command of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, thereby, the implied task is to put a, a puppet regime in that's more supportive to uh, Russia. And therefore, that means that their main effort has to be at that political centre of gravity, which is around Kiev. And that's why we're seeing um, a big push of Russian military trying to get into Kiev. But military operations, especially this sort of level, are, are really complicated. Um, and there's a series of things that you have to do um, to uh, allow you to be able to manoeuvre your formations in the way that you want to. The first thing that I'd have expected the Russians to do would have been to gain what you call air superiority. So get into a position where uh, they can fly their aircraft, their helicopters and everything else in Ukrainian airspace with no threat whatsoever. And to do that, that would require them to destroy your Ukrainian radar that can, that can identify Russian aircraft, um, destroy Ukrainian anti-air capabilities, the air defence batteries, their missiles and everything else, um, and destroy the Ukrainian Air Force. And we're still getting reports today that Ukrainian Air Force are uh, interdicting Russian air. Uh, Russian aircraft are being shot down, so they clearly haven't achieved that. If they can't maintain air superiority, it um, will impact Russia's ability to manoeuvre and allow Ukraine still to manoeuvre against the Russian ground forces as they start to come in. Because the second thing that I'd have expected them to do is to try and put rapidly deployable forces into different areas um, around Kiev in particular, um, so that they can sort of soak out from those areas as they get reinforced, um, like uh, an oil spot on water. Um, and secure, secure the areas um, for um, ground forces to come in. And we saw them attempt to do that at a military airport to the west of Kiev 36 hours ago, and they failed again. Now, the sorts of troops that you put in to do that sort of operation are their best. 
the best trained, the best equipped, the best motivated, um, and all the rest of it. They failed. Then when it comes to the ground forces coming in, um, and now we haven't, we don't have that ink blot there um, uh, that can soak out. We don't have the disruption that will be going on um, in in the south. Uh, we don't have air superiority from a Russian perspective. The ground troops would be, you'd expect them to rapidly move down um, the different axis to try and uh, get into Kiev and, and surround it. Um, it's about 130 miles from the Russian border down the main axis. There's a there's two roads in, um, and you know, Kiev is in a fortunate position where it's sort of split up to the Russian border with um, a, a large lake and reservoir that's there. Uh, and I'd have expected the Russians to come down uh, both both sides of that, which is what they're doing. But they're coming down very slowly. And, and in classic terms, as they're coming down, you'd expect them to be leading with artillery, rockets and everything else to soften up the Ukrainian defences before moving in with ground troops just, just to clear things up. There's been no evidence of that. So what the Russians aren't doing is they're not massing from a collective perspective, you know, uh, which allows them to punch really hard. What does that say to me? Well, that says to me that actually the Ukrainians are um, running a masterful defence. They are delaying the Russians. They're holding them back. They're causing them to have to use more ammunition, more fuel, uh, giving them casualties, which will have an impact on uh, the human factors. And and warfare is a very human activity. The longer the Ukrainians can hold on, the greater the possibility, and I'll almost go to probability, that um, you, the Russians will find themselves themselves in a position where they can't manoeuvre anymore. So why do you think Vladimir Putin decided to proceed with an invasion? He was given every opportunity to de-escalate, to pursue a diplomatic path, and e- even through that, still come out on top to some extent. So what benefits was there for him in choosing this path? That would be a very easy question to um, uh, to answer if you didn't think of things from Putin's perspective. You think of things from our perspective, you, it's dead easy to say, well, there's no benefits whatsoever. There's no logic behind it. Hmm. Um, however, there's no point in doing that because it's Putin that's made the decision. So you have to put yourself into Putin's shoes. He's been leading Russia for you know, quite a long period of time. Uh, he came into politics having been a KGB officer beforehand. His final operational tour as a KGB officer was in the former East Germany, um, where as the wall was coming down, he was destroying East German intelligence files and the, uh, the Stasi. Uh, and then he moved up into um, Russia to be an advisor to one of the city mayors, where he then made the decision that in this new Russia, um, with no Soviet Union, he didn't want to be part of the state intelligence machinery anymore. He wanted to go into politics. And that started his furor into politics. And he very quickly got himself into positions where um, he got up to prime minister and then uh, into the presidential piece. And has spent a lot of his time making sure that he can virtually stay in post for life. Mm-hmm. But what you know, the, the, the thing that motivated him uh, the whole way through was the Soviet Union and um, that's, that position in the world as a superpower, because we always talked of the two superpower blocks, you know, the American-led NATO uh, superpower block, and then the Russian-led USSR superpower block. Working out who the enemy was was very simple. Um, and intelligence in those days was relatively simple, because you're, you're looking at the powers between the two different things. He's hankered back to that. He's never accepted that the USSR is gone 
and that um, Russia has been shrunk down into a country that can't afford to do what it wants to do, isn't seen in the world stage as a, as a, as a global leader. Um, and then from his perspective, he's seen a lot of the countries that were part of the uh, USSR um, decide that they saw their collective defence and their, their political affiliations more with the West. So, you know, joined NATO, joined the EU, um, and Putin, from his perspective, saw that as a threat. He's always dismissed Ukraine as being a separate country. He's always seen the Ukrainians as, um, he's called them little Russians for years, but as second class Russian citizens. And therefore, you know, he's got a personal resentment of Ukraine as a, as a separate country. Um, and you know, the size of the operation that's going on at the moment, it's not something that he has in the last two months, three months, six months, decided he's going to put together and do this. He's been planning this for years. This has been going on for a long time. And his he, he started his actions against Ukraine on the ground in 2014 when he annexed uh, Crimea. But in reality, he started a good 10 years before that because he was running an information operation campaign trying to undermine um, the fact that Ukraine was a separate country. And that's, this is where the Little Russians piece came out and all the rest of it. So since about 2004, and probably a couple of years earlier than that, he's been running a campaign to undermine focus on um, the destruction of Ukraine. And he's used the, the time now to actually put together, deploy his forces and, and launch uh, the operation. A good question would be, why did, why did he choose now? And I think what he's done is he sat and watched the complete and utter debacle that was the um, Allied withdrawal from Afghanistan or ejection from Afghanistan by the Taliban. Um, and he will have assessed um, that the Western resolve would have been such that they would not want to get embroiled in any way, shape or form in anything else. You know, the Russians had their own horrors in Afghanistan, but they left in relatively good order um, compared to the way you know, we scrambled out and then failed to bring out all of the people who, who had supported us. And in his mind, he'll have gone politically, this is probably the best time for me to take some action against Ukraine and, and see what it can do. And he's, he started building it up, but he's he surrounds himself with people who are um, yes men and yes women. Any dissenters tend to go for window cleaning jobs, but they forget that the window's open. Um, and that gets rid of his dissenters. Or there's a little bit of a threat of Novichok in your underpants. You know, that, again, tends to focus people's minds. So when you've got someone whose thinking is flawed, um, who's not thinking logically, and the whole team around him are not going to feed him anything that changes that thinking. In fact, they're going to feed him what he wants to reinforce it. That's why Putin's got into the position where he has. Um, and he's believed a lot of his own hype, I think, about the actual strength and abilities of his of his military. And within all this, you've got the, the flip side, which is President Zelensky, who's been a fantastic leader throughout all this. And on Thursday evening, I think it was, he made a really moving address to the Russian people. Mm -hmm. And even, even though this speech didn't stop Putin from launching an invasion, do you think it's actually cut through to the, the Russian people? We've seen a number of protests pop up in St. Petersburg and Moscow and other Russian cities. Part of the problem is Putin controls what the Russian people see and hear. You know, the internet in Russia is controlled. People have very little access to the social media platforms and the news platforms and everything else that we've got. The West tries very hard to get Western media and, and information into Russia itself, but it is very controlled um, and policed quite heavily. 
Zelensky's speech, Zelensky's leadership in this is masterful. I'm almost emotional um, watching what he's doing um, and the confidence that he's giving to the Ukrainian people uh, and everything else. He is um, an example to all world leaders as to how they should behave. Um, and he's bringing a lot of his senior leaders um, uh, along with that. You know, the, the mayor of Kiev is one of the Klitschko brothers who is a multi-millionaire in his own right. He, he could be anywhere in the world, um, yet he's decided to take up arms. He's put he's put uniform on, he's got his machine gun, and you know, instead of running away, which he could do easily, he's he's defending his home city. The leadership that we're seeing in Ukraine is is absolutely superb. There are reports coming out, and I'm slightly hesitant here because a lot of this is single source reporting and it's very difficult and dangerous to, to report single source reporting. But the capture of um, Russian soldiers on the ground, stories have, have come out as they're being interrogated that they were told that they would be celebrated as liberators coming into Ukraine whenever they got there. And they don't, they don't understand why they're being um, shouted at and berated. There was the classic uh, of... Uh, an old lady at the airport west of Kiev who went up to the Russian special forces soldiers that were there and, and um, handed them sunflower seeds, which and the sunflower is the national flower of Ukraine, uh, and said, put them in your pockets, because when you die, at least you leave something beautiful on our soil, get out. And you know, the, the Russian soldiers were very civil to her, which again surprised me, but that's showed that they were the more professional end of, of, the, of the Russian troops that were in there. But the Russian people and a lot of the Russian military that are there haven't been told the truth as to what they're doing and why they're there. And the messaging that's going back in the Russian people is very controlled. As more bodies go back, as this goes on longer and more information gets in from all those different routes, because you can't seal a country off completely, then I think the dissent inside um, Russia will grow more and more. And this is why the... Um, the sanctions and everything that are coming in, that they, they don't seem to be anything that are anywhere near aggressive enough to deal with what, what's going on. But those sanctions will start to bite the Russian people very quickly. And the, the, you know, they, they are a proud people. They will start to ask questions as to why. Why is this happening? And they'll go out searching for the information and they'll suddenly find that what they're being fed is a, you know, a complete pack of lies. Um, and when they when they get the truth, that's when there'll be a, a greater groundswell of public opinion against uh, against Putin. Uh, one of the things that's been quite interesting to look at as an observer on on this conflict is the fact that much of it has been fought technologically with cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. It's just gone qu quarter past two in the afternoon on Saturday the 26th. There's been rumours of a partial shutdown of Facebook and Twitter seems to be very heavily restricted in Russia at the moment based on current reporting. And again, on the disinformation, there's been Russian propaganda suggesting, according to the Ukrainian foreign minister, that Ukraine is preparing to drop a dirty bomb, to quote, on Russian territory. I mean, how dangerous are these malicious rumours for civilians? And do you think this sort of disinformation and launching of cyber attacks is the new way of fighting wars? Oh, there's a, there's a lot in there. Your uh, listeners are probably not old enough to remember the old saying that my mother used to pump into me whenever you came back from school with a, a black eye or, or and saying someone had been calling you names in the playground. You know, Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you. Well, that's wrong. Um, words can kill. And, and we saw that with the speech that uh, Donald Trump gave that um, caused the, uh, the riot uh, and attack on the Capitol building in the United States where people died and everything else. Um, Russia are 
specialize in information operations. The restriction of Facebook and Twitter um, inside Russia and all the rest of it is part of the control that they have on the internet. Russia controls all internet access in and out of Russia um, and everything that's there. So they're controlling it because they don't want the reality of the messages to get into the Russian people. And that's that's why they'll restrict certain things. China does the same. And the Russians have got a doctrine called Maskarovka. And Maskarovka is all, is all about masking. And it's all about disinformation. It's about painting the picture the way they want the picture to be. So they painted the, the picture to the Russian people. And you look at some of the Russian news broadcasts, and it's all about the uh, disputed Donbass region and uh, the political leaders of the Donbass region calling Russia in to protect them against the aggressive Ukrainians who've been attacking them um, and everything else. And that's why they're in there. There's no mention of um, Russia trying to attack Kiev or anything else. So that's an integral part of it. Cyber is interesting in that there's an awful lot of hype has been around where people have been um, expecting Russia to put massive cyber attacks out um, and those cyber attacks to start disabling critical national infrastructure inside Ukraine, uh, attacking their communications networks um, uh, and everything else. But the mobile phone system still working, the electricity still working, um, the media outlets are still working. So they haven't done that. There have been a number of cyber incidents around, and some of them actually haven't been reported. Um, you know, there have been attacks on um, the Scandinavian market index, which went down for a, a period of time. Um, and surprise, surprise, that was the same day that the Russian spokesman uh, threatened uh, Finland and Sweden um, if they decided to join NATO. Are they linked? I don't know. It's a single source report I've got on that, but I'd, I'd be surprised if, if it wasn't. Um, and there have been other attacks on exchanges and other attacks on other, other bits and pieces. A couple of other interesting bits around cyber. The NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, turned around in his speech, this will have been Friday, and he talked about Article 5, and said that under certain circumstances, a cyber attack could be considered an Article 5 attack. Now, for your listeners, Article 5 in NATO is um, an attack on one NATO nation is an attack on all um, and and will result on a collective response from NATO. Putin does not want NATO to get involved. He he knows he can't survive if, if NATO gets fully involved in all of this. And part of the reason why NATO is not getting involved on the ground at the moment um, or you know, in, in the air and, and taking direct military action is if that happens, we go from it being a country-specific, geographically limited conflict to it being a conflict that will go across the whole of Europe, across to the United States, and will potentially spill over into other parts of the world. We've got World War Three. And World War Three, where um, a number of the nations are nuclear powers, is not a place we want to go to. The Russians use information, um, and they use it quite aggressively. Everything they do has got this Maskarovka element to it. Um, and it's nothing new. You know, mask- the use of information, the use of deception uh, is something that has been going on for years. I, I go back to, I'm a great fan of the great Chinese philosopher and general Sun Tzu, who um, was from the 6th century. Uh, there's a book of his that is so relevant today to just about everything you do. And part of it, he, he describes warfare and deception. And he says, all warfare is deception, all deception is warfare. Um, and, and the Russians follow, follow that tactic. Um, it's an integral part of what you're doing. You want to try and um, confuse the enemy. So again, in Sun Tzu's book, he says you want the enemy to, when you're close, you want them to believe that you're far away. When you're weak, you want them to believe that you're strong. Um, and you, this is why you control the information sphere, so that you're trying to put that message across. Um, we used to be good at it. 
you know, during the Second World War, in the run-up to the Allied landings on D-Day in Normandy, um, there was an operation called Operation Fortitude. Operation Fortitude convinced Hitler that we were going to attack in through the Pas de Calais, not come in through Normandy. Um, and we did that by creating a fake US army who had a real commander, but there's fake communications pretending um, that, that they were preparing for everything. Um, they had fake tanks. There was blow-up tanks. There was, there was fake wooden aircraft. So whenever German reconnaissance aircraft flew overhead, they could see these ca- camouflage ships and things that looked like tanks and aircraft and all the rest of it that reinforced what they're going on. And, and the, the, the most complex part of the whole operation was another operation called Operation Mincemeat, where they put detailed plans about the Allied invasion through the Pas de Calais, um, put them uh, in, in folders as they should have been uh, and all the rest of it, and strapped them to the body of um, a major um, or a major's uniform and faked an aircraft crash where his body was washed up on, on the shores, knowing that the German intelligence would get hold of these plans and they were taken to Hitler and he believed it. And this, the operation was called Operation Mincemeat. Um, and he believed these completely. And that meant that there was a, an easier ride for the Allies coming into, into Normandy. R- Russia does the same. Yeah, th- it, it is an integral part of, of, of uh, warfare across the board. And they're very, very good at it. In this age... Today, the biggest problem is that everyone is connected to everything all of the time. And therefore, you know, I can get a message to President Zelensky of Ukraine because I've got his Twitter account. I can get a message to Joe Biden because I can get his Twitter account. During the Second World War, you couldn't do that. Um, it doesn't get there. So, so it's the instantaneous nature of everything that's going out there. And people are clamoring for data and information. Um, and people very often will repost something, will comment on something or, or push it out further without actually asking the question, is this true? Is this misinformation, yeah. disinformation? Um, am I part of a, a wider propaganda machine? Mm. Um, and that makes it, from an, an intelligence officer's perspective, um, uh, looking at things very, very difficult indeed whenever you're trying to sort the wheat from the chaff. It's interesting you mentioned social media there. And, you know, they, they say that the Vietnam War was regarded as the first televised war and the, the Gulf War was the, the first 24-hour rolling news war. So do you think this could be the first social media war? At this sort of scale, um, with this sort of insight, yes. I, I think I think it probably is because... Um, you know, when was the previous shooting conflicts that we're involved in? And we're, we're back to the Gulf Wars. You know, there, there is a degree of a social media war going on out of um, Syria. Uh, there has been with um, the actions against ISIS. And, and we saw how ISIS exploited social media um, by putting things out there. So uh, conventional war where the social media is a heavy player. This one, yes. But unconventional warfare, where social media has played hard, no, I think um, pro- probably Syria is uh, is is the first where it's had a real impact um, and was exploited by you know, the terror organisations, ISIS in particular, yeah. um, for for their effect. Okay, well, well, let's move away from specifically Russia and Ukraine. Look at NATO for a moment. Do you think they are doing enough to support Ukraine? NATO is interesting. Yes, and as simple answer, um, because we cannot get involved militarily because Ukraine is not part of NATO. So Article 5 doesn't, doesn't come in. Um, NATO is a, is a collective defence organisation. So it's there to defend um, against aggressors uh, and defend its, its member states. However, most NATO countries, not all, have decided that one of the best ways of defence um, is to try and stop 
Putin's advance. And the only way to do that and still not get directly involved is to, pl- is to supply materiel to um, the Ukrainian forces. And NATO was training Ukrainian forces before Russia attacked in. Um, and th- those training teams had to be pulled out. But NATO countries are still c- continuing to supply arms um, military material, medical equipment and everything else into the Ukrainian forces so that they can continue the fight. Um, uh, and it's, that's where we see your UK supplying uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, I've just read a report that the Netherlands are sending another 200 um, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles uh, and you know, lots of things of like that. I saw pictures of a Polish convoy on Friday with lots of ammunition and rounds for tanks and, and everything else. So NATO is, is working hard. The biggest thing that NATO is doing at the moment is cooperatively providing intelligence into Ukraine. Um, and it's doing that on a more of a on a national bilateral basis, um, US in particular. But the intelligence assets that NATO's got that are flying and other assets uh, are providing a very, very clear picture as to what the Russians are doing. Uh, and therefore, that can be used by the Ukrainians to constantly tweak and, and um, adjust their defensive postures so that they can um, have the maximum delaying effect on, on Russian advances. And as well as the supply of materials, the, the West and NATO nations are going really heavy on Im- imposing sanctions on Russia, Russian individuals, Russian companies. Again, do you think that is the right response? Do you think those sanctions have gone far enough or do you think they are merely a starting point that they need to actually go further? I, I think the starting point, it's very easy to criticise sanctions as they come in. Um, a, they're only going to work if everyone applies them and, and therefore trying to get collectively different countries with different priorities to apply the same sanctions uh, all at the same time is is diplomatically very difficult. And therefore, I think different nations around the world have, have moved quite quickly in doing that. Mm. Um, whenever you're applying sanctions, you're doing it to try and have a diplomatic effect and a political effect. Uh, and therefore, if you go for the maximum at the very beginning, you've got nowhere else to go. Mm. So you need to be in a position where you're ramping things up. Um, and as you're ramping things up, you're reaching out with a diplomatic olive branch saying, mm-hmm. uh, come and talk, come and talk. You stop doing what you're doing uh, and at every stage. But there will come to a point where we effectively need to isolate Russia completely um, and uh, you know, stop it engaging with the rest of the world um, if it doesn't sit back and listen. The other part of the sanctions going in is as the sanctions start to bite, it means that the people in Russia will start to question more. Uh, and they will then find out more of the truth, uh, and that will start a groundswell of opinion. Not just the you know, the, the the normal people living in the streets, but it's the, the higher decision makers. So whenever the oligarchs and the oligarchs' families can't you know access their luxury yachts and their luxury holidays and buy their luxury clothes and everything else, they're going to start questioning, and and that's where the real pressure will come in. And remember, warfare is not about troops on the ground and and fighting. It's Politics. You know, the, the military are a political tool, uh, and they're a political tool that's used whenever the, the diplomatic efforts have failed, and the diplomatic efforts here have failed. Uh, why did they fail? They failed because Putin had already made his mind up and was belligerent and um, wasn't going to do, do anything else because he thought he was right. Um, now we have to continue the diplomacy whilst the uh, military tool is being used and make sure that that doesn't back us into a, a wider position where it's, it's even more difficult to negotiate uh, and find a diplomatic way out. In, in particular with the UK, how do you think that, uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has responded to this crisis? Do you think the UK is doing enough? Do you think it's being the, the leader of this, this NATO coalition to support Ukraine? 
Well, it's it's very interesting watching what's going on. Boris has had his problems, but actually, if you look at from a UK's perspective and you look at what the UK's done, you look at um, a lot of the press briefings that there were from the NATO leaders and all the rest of it, the person leading the press briefings was the UK Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace. Hmm. The person that was doing the majority of the shuttle diplomacy around the different nations of the EU um, and into Ukraine and elsewhere were two British politicians, Ben Wallace from the defence side uh, and Liz Truss from the foreign minister side. I think, therefore, from a government perspective, that actually the British government has been a bit of a world leader in you know, trying to get people together and you know, leading the negotiations and what's going on. And you know, Boris, therefore, as the prime minister, uh, you know, some of the glory from that will wash off on him and um, might detract slightly from wine and cheese parties during lockdown. Um, I think that's what he's probably hoping for. But no, genuinely, um, I have been surprised at just how well um, the UK leadership has been on the global stage and how much of a leading role that the UK has taken and how much that's been accepted in the EU and, and across the world. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's been good. And Boris Johnson made a, a statement late on Friday night and parts of it, he spoke in both Russian and Ukrainian. How much of an impact would that have for the Ukrainian people watching that in terms of boosting morale? And I suppose for the Russian side, hearing our prime minister speaking in Russian, saying, we, we know that your government is not doing this for you, essentially. What effect would that have on the Russian speaking world? That, that'll have a massive effect on, on them, uh, a massive effect on, on morale. Um, there is a little bit of a fan club for um, the Brits inside Ukraine. We've always had a close working relationship with the Ukrainians. You know, one of my best friends when I went through military staff college was a Ukrainian Air Force officer um, who, uh, when he first realised that we were sitting beside each other, he, he thought I was put there to deliberately spy on him um, right. because he still had the old Soviet mentality. Um, and then we ended up good mates. But Boris Johnson, you're speaking Russian and Ukrainian. Um, you know, that, that will have had a massive impact on, on, on the people. Uh, and the, the fan club that's in there, you know, we, we heard... Uh, the Secretary of State for Defence the other day um, be caught slightly off guard where he said that the, the, the Russians are gone full tonto. Well, there is a little bit of an, a Ukrainian military fan club that went and looked up what full tonto means. Uh, and I've just seen a couple of briefings where um, Ukrainian officers have said, uh, I've described things as full tonto back again. So you know, it, it's showing that uh, the UK is having uh, a good mark, uh, a good effect on uh, Ukrainian morale on the ground. And then speaking to the Russians in Russian, uh, how much of that will actually get through? I, I don't know, but um, it's, it's a masterful stroke. It's a good way of doing it. Okay, just finished then. Let's bring it back to specifically Russia. It looks as though the Ukrainians are winning this battle. It's, it seems there's been far more Russian casualties than there have been Ukrainian. So do you think as a result of this war, if, if it ends up being that the Ukrainians do win, could this be the end of Vladimir Putin's presidency? I, I think it's too early to say that the Ukrainians are winning. I'd say they're stopping the Russians achieving what they wanted to achieve in the timeframes that they set I think from, from the winning perspective, the next 48 hours are going to be critical. Mm -hmm. But if Putin doesn't achieve what he wanted to achieve and achieve it relatively quickly, then I think his days are numbered. I think even, I, I can't, even if he does topple the government and everything else, I think he's underestimated the Ukrainian people and has embroiled himself into uh, the Russian equivalent of Vietnam 
um, or uh, Afghanistan again, because the Ukrainians will not give up and just give in to some new puppet government that's supporting Moscow. Uh, and therefore, there's a, a very strong possibility, if not probability, that um, this is um, you know, Putin's final hour. Um, you know, we, he, he's gone after this. He's coming in with a misbrief military who think that they're liberating um, uh, pe- uh, peoples that want to be liberated. Um, and he's got a, a mixture of uh, contract military and um, conscripts who have been away from home now with their big exercises for months and months and months. Uh, they don't know where they're going to. They don't know why they're there. Uh, and, and they're not really that well motivated but they're fighting against people who are fighting for national survival and for the survival of their families. That's one thing that um, will really make your people fight and fight hard and gives that extra bit of strength that's in there. So, you know, I think if the Ukrainians can hold out for another 48 hours, then um, we might uh, begin to see that potential defeat or reaching what's called the culminating point. Russia can't maneuver any, any further forward. So have to sue for peace. Okay, well, a fantastic analysis there. Philip Ingram, MB, thank you very much for coming on the show. Not a problem. My pleasure. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.